All right. Let's get into the Word today. This past week and a half in our Rooted Bible reading, we've been reading 1 Corinthians, we've been reading Haggai, and uh, we're reading Psalms 119. Usually we read a chapter a day, but we're spending several days in Psalms 119 because it's so long. And so in reading 1 Corinthians last week, when I got to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it really just jumped out at me and God began stirring my heart. And so uh, that, that is the basis of our sermon today. As, as we're trying to have our sermons line up a lot more with what we're reading from our Rooted Bible reading. We're going to preach from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to be talking about signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. If you've got your notes, hopefully everybody got a bulletin on their, on their way in today. If you're on the digital campus, you'll find the notes attached to the video. You'll also find the notes attached to the podcast if you're listening to this audio. But check out the notes here today. Let's talk about signs and wonders. Most important, if we're going to be a church that believes in miracles, if we're going to be a church that believes in the power of God, then we need to be firmly rooted in the purpose for those things. Right? Why? Why do we believe in signs and wonders? Why are signs and wonders important? And so that's where I want to start here in the notes. You can see it says this, the purpose of signs and wonders is to demonstrate irrefutable evidence of the truth of the gospel and the reality of the kingdom of God so that people will put their faith in the power of God, not in the wisdom of man. Right? The purpose of signs and wonders is to demonstrate irrefutable evidence. Something miraculous happened. And when that miraculous thing happened, the kingdom of God is declared. And when people see it and hear it, they believe in the kingdom of God, but not because of some manipulative speech, not because of some persuasive oratory. No, not because of that, but because they saw the power of God and the power of God was real in their lives and they wanted that power in their lives. Right? Nobody convinced me of the gospel. Nobody talked me into it. I gave my life to Christ because I saw the power of God at work in other people's lives, and I wanted that power in my life. And that's why I gave my life to Christ, because I wanted to be free. I wanted the power of God to deliver me. So we're going to talk about signs and wonders. Now, we're using my iPad to film this outdoor service. So I'm actually preaching from paper for like the first time in 10 years. I'm feeling you, Lannis. I know you got your papers mixed up a couple weeks ago. My papers are blowing around already on me. We want to see irrefutable evidence. We want to know. Yeah, it's just not going to work out. Hallelujah. Use the brick. Use the brick. Now you tell me. All right, can I get a couple people to help me out? Thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah. You're going to get all the notes. I just don't know what order you're going to get them all. All right. We'll see. Come on. So let's start by laying a foundation of our theology of signs and wonders, and then we're going to get into 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Signs and wonders is first mentioned in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 3. 
God said, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. And so our first experience of signs and wonders in the Bible is the ten plagues that came upon Egypt to demonstrate irrefutable evidence that God was with the Israelites. And even after the ten plagues, uh, the, the pillar of cloud followed them by day, the pillar of fire by night. It led them to the Red Sea, parted the Red Sea. They walked through on dry land. The Red Sea closed up on Pharaoh's army. Signs and wonders. And even from that moment, they had the same purpose, to demonstrate irrefutable evidence of the power and the reality of the kingdom of God. This model of ministry was established by Jesus. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, Peter described Jesus like this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. So Jesus established the model that God, through Jesus, was demonstrating that Jesus was the Messiah, that the kingdom of God was at hand, and it was the miracles and the wonders and the signs that were taking place. Now, I know that some churches that don't want to operate in signs and wonders, they have established a doctrine that says that signs and wonders were only for the apostles and that signs and wonders died with the apostles. And they point to some scripture verses, and it does say a couple of times in the book of Acts that signs and wonders were happening through the hands of the apostles. But never does it say that they were only happening through the hands of the apostles. Right? We also see signs and wonders happening through 70 that Jesus sent out in pairs. Luke chapter 10, Jesus got 70 people, broke them up into pairs, sent them out ahead of him into the towns and villages to proclaim the kingdom of God. And in Luke 10 and verse 9, he says, And heal those in it who are sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to demonstrate a miracle and then declare the kingdom. Demonstrate a miracle and then declare the kingdom. This was not just the apostles. This was 70 followers of Jesus. In the book of Acts, we also see that the deacons were performing signs and wonders. Right? Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. What about Philip? Acts chapter 8 and verse 6. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. So this wasn't just the apostles. We see disciples of Jesus. We see the deacons of the church. What about Acts chapter 4, verses 29 and 30? And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. It doesn't say, Lord, will you let the apostles... Be bold to declare your word. It doesn't say, Lord, will you let the deacons be bold to declare your word? No, they prayed, let your bondservants. Who is that? That's all of us. They said, let all of us, let the whole church declare your word and let signs and wonders flow through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
So we have this theology that signs and wonders were meant to demonstrate the irrefutable power, the irrefutable reality of the kingdom of God. And that it wasn't just reserved for the apostles. It wasn't just reserved for the first church or the days that they were writing the Bible. It was a model of ministry established for all time for the season of the church, which we live in. Amen. We live in the season of the New Testament church. Now, there are end time prophecies that say that when the false uh, prophets, when the Antichrist and his false prophets come, that they will also be able to perform signs and wonders. And so there could actually be false signs and wonders meant to deceive the people of God. You say, well, great, now how do we tell the difference? Well, in 1 John chapter 4, it tells us how to tell the difference. It says, test every spirit. If the spirit is giving glory to Jesus as the Messiah, then that's the spirit of God. And if it's not giving glory to Jesus as the Messiah, then it's not the spirit of God. And so every sign, every wonder, every miracle that we perform in the church and through the church and through our lives out in the community should be followed by the declaration of Jesus Christ as Lord. Are you guys with me? All right, come on. So let's get to our core text, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul is writing this letter to a church that he established in Corinth. And after he went away, the church started getting off track. And so he had to write this letter both to answer some of their questions, but also to correct some of the things they were getting wrong in the church. Let's start reading in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. There's an interesting picture here, right? Because when we read Bible stories, we like to take these characters and, and, and we put them up on pedestals and act like these are like mythical, legendary characters. And they're so different from us and they're so far removed from us. But that is not the case. These were men just as us, full of the Holy Spirit and doing everything they could to follow after the Lord in faith. So we get this picture of Paul. He's the mighty apostle. He went on three missionary journeys. His whole mission was to establish churches in places where they had never heard the gospel before. He was this mighty man of God. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Man, he had it all together. He was super powerful. No, what does it say there? He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. So I want to talk this morning about what that's all about. Because one of the reasons why we put these guys up on a pedestal is so that we don't have to do it. Because if he's like this mighty, untouchable guy who's so much different than us, then I don't have to compare my ministry or my life to the way that he did it. But if he was a guy just like us, 
and in weakness and fear and trembling, the power of God still managed to work through his life, then that means that we would be responsible also to see the power of God working through our lives in weakness and fear and trembling. Paul said, I demonstrated to you the power of God. Let's talk about the signs and wonders of Paul's ministry. In Acts chapter 13, there was this magician called Elamis who was, uh, as Paul was on the island of Cyprus preaching to the proconsul or the governor of Cyprus, and he was about to lead the governor of Cyprus to the Lord, and there was this magician, Elamis, who, who kind of had uh, uh, influence, who had sway, who had some sort of control over the proconsul. Kind of like when you're watching Lord of the Rings and in the two towers, right, you had that king and then Wormtongue had all of this power and influence over the king. Kind of like that. And Paul's trying to preach the gospel and this magician, Elemis, keeps trying to lead the proconsul away. Finally, Paul gets fed up and he declares temporary blindness over the magician. The magician goes blind. He has no idea what's going on, but the power of God was demonstrated and it says immediately the governor gave his life to Christ. In Acts chapter 14... Paul healed a grown man who had never walked before in his life. The Bible says he had been lame from his mother's womb. And Paul healed him and he got up and walked. In Acts chapter 16, there was a young slave girl who was possessed by an evil spirit. And she was walking behind Paul and Barnabas or, or, or Paul and Silas, I mean, almost mocking them. And finally, Paul got fed up with it, and he turned around, and he cast the evil spirit out of the young girl, and she was set free. Her slave owner was not too happy because the evil spirit had made her a fortune teller. The fortune teller was making him money, and now his cash cow was gone. He cast out an evil spirit. In Acts chapter 19... It says that the power of God was so moving in Paul's life that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had simply touched his body were then laid on the sick, and the sick were healed. That's okay. If they're blown away, that means I already preached them. Come on. Evil spirits were being cast out of people just because a handkerchief was being placed on them that had touched Paul's body. Acts chapter 20, while Paul was preaching, a young man who was sitting in a third floor window fell asleep and fell out of the window and hit the ground and died. That's why you should never fall asleep during a sermon. Hallelujah. So what did Paul do? He stopped the sermon, walked over to the guy, prayed him back to life, and then got back up on stage and kept preaching the sermon demonstrated the power of God, and then continued to preach the gospel. Acts chapter 28, while Paul was shipwrecked on the island of Malta, he was bit on the hand by a highly poisonous viper. The natives of the island were standing around going, watch this. This guy's going to drop dead here in about five seconds. And then they stood in amazement. 
as the venom never even hurt him. And they recognize there's something special about this guy. Uh-oh. Here we go. I found it. Also, while on the island, Paul healed the leading man's father. And then all the sick began coming to Paul to be healed. So when we're talking about signs and wonders, what are we talking about? Well, from Paul's ministry, we can see that signs and wonders means that people are getting healed, the dead are getting raised, demons are getting cast out, unexplainable signs are happening, lives are being transformed, gifts of the Holy Spirit are operating, and people are coming to salvation because of the demonstration of the power of the kingdom of God. Are you guys with me? So let's talk about your notes. Four things. Four things when it comes to fully preaching the gospel. And you say, Pastor, what do you mean by fully preaching the gospel? Well, listen to this. Romans chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Paul wrote, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem, around about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, I started in Jerusalem, right? That's where Paul started. And he said, I've made it all the way till Illyricum which is the deepest into Europe he made it, right? He went all through what we know as Greece and Turkey and made it all the way to Illyricum. By this time, he hadn't made it to Rome yet, though he would eventually make it to Rome. But he says, from where I started to as far as I have preached, everywhere I have preached, I have fully preached the gospel. What does it mean to fully preach the gospel? It means that signs and wonders and the power of the Holy Spirit are accompanying the preaching of the gospel. So let's talk about fully preaching the gospel. Number one, proclaim a simple message. Proclaim a simple message. And you can see in your notes, what is that simple message? Who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us. Right? Paul said, I brought to you the testimony of God. What is a testimony? It's saying what somebody did. So I'm going to tell you what God did. In the next verse, in verse 2, he says, I determined that I was only going to preach Jesus and Jesus crucified. Nothing else. So listen, when it comes to fully preaching the gospel, let's start with a simple message. We freak ourselves out sometimes because we're just like, I can't do it. There's too much. I don't know it all. I don't understand enough. No, proclaim a simple message. Who is Jesus? He is God in the flesh. Come to this earth to live amongst us. What did Jesus do? He died a brutal death on a cross. Why? Because through his death, we all can be set free from the punishment of sin. And then he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And because he's alive today, we can be victorious over death, hell, and the grave and anything the devil wants to do in our lives. That's it. Proclaim a simple message. Paul said, if they think it's foolishness, that just means they're perishing. But if their hearts are ready, they will receive that message as the power of God, and they will find salvation in their lives. Proclaim a simple message. 
Don't psych yourself out. Right? Paul said, I didn't use fancy persuasive words. Now, Corinth is in what we know as, as Greece, right? It was, it was the Greek culture. What do we know about the Greek culture? They were all about philosophy and oratory, right? They were all about perfecting the skill of public speaking. They were all about learning the, the psychology and the science of manipulation and persuasion and influence so that they could better craft their public speaking skills so that whatever their philosophy was would become the mainstream philosophy so that they would have bigger platforms and more influence. So everything about the Greek culture was about using human wisdom to persuade people using fancy speeches. And what does Paul say? He says, I didn't do any of that. Don't rely on human methods if we're trying to get God's results. We don't need to persuade anybody. We just need to proclaim a simple message. Just proclaim a simple message. Number two, embrace your weaknesses. Embrace your weaknesses. And you can see the subpoint. This is critical. We don't need complete victory in our lives to demonstrate the power of God. We don't need complete victory in our lives to demonstrate the power of God. So don't wait until you've got everything set free and fixed and healed in your life before you set out to heal somebody else. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and starting in verse 7, Paul says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Paul says, listen, I understand that I have a powerful ministry and that God has given me some special revelations that he hasn't given to anybody else. And because of that, because of my human flesh, I would have a tendency to get full of myself. And I would begin to exalt myself because I had such a high calling. And so in order to keep me humble, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Now, he doesn't say what that thorn in the flesh is other than referring to it as a tormenting spirit sent from Satan. Verse 8, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Basically, God's answer was, I'm not going to heal you. I'm not going to take away this thorn in your flesh. And so Paul's response, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, we need to embrace our weaknesses. Paul had something tormenting his flesh. He doesn't tell us what it is. Some people have hypothesized that he was losing his eyesight. Because at the end of the book of Ephesians, he said, you see what large letters I'm writing to you in. And so they think that means that he was slowly going blind, and so he had to write really big to see what he was writing. So maybe he was slowly going blind, right? Macular degeneration or something of that sort. Or maybe it truly was an evil spirit that just would constantly come against him and cause him to experience insecurities and doubts and question himself. 
Maybe it was some other sickness. We don't know exactly, but we know that Paul was a man who operated in weakness. On top of that, he got beaten all the time. Just constantly, his body was just filled with scars, and I'm sure he had some, some, some muscle tears and some limbs, you know. Maybe he had a little lean to his body. Who knows? Because this was a guy who was crushed with r- large stones. He was beaten with sticks. He was whipped 39 times. This guy was brutalized. His body was broken. And here he is healing other people, setting other people free, while his body is still broken. He says, I was with you in weakness. So listen, I know that we might fear people mocking us. Oh, you're going to pray for me to get set free when I know that you still have a struggle? Oh, you're going to pray for me to get healed when I know that you're still sick? Hey, listen, they mocked Jesus the same way, right? When he was hanging on a cross, what did they say to him? Oh, you're going to save the whole kingdom, Jesus. Why don't you save yourself first? So if Jesus could endure mocking like that, then maybe we could also. You don't need to have complete victory in your life to have the power of God work through your life. Now listen, I'm not talking about living in willful, unrepentant sin, okay? That's not what Paul was talking about here. All right, if you're living in willful, unrepentant sin... You need to deal with that. You need to come to the cross of Christ, and you need to repent, and you need to, to allow the, 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 the power of God to deliver you from those things. So I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about if you're sick, if your body is broken, if you're under persecution, if you're living in distress, if you're facing difficulty, if your provision hasn't come through yet, your miracle hasn't happened yet, that does not stop you from praying for the power of God to move through your life to perform signs and wonders. You don't have to be whole to make somebody else whole. You don't have to be healed to see somebody else get healed. Even more so, when you pray in your brokenness, you're relying on the power of God even more. Which is why Paul declared, when I am weak, then I am strong. So I will boast in my weaknesses. So we need to embrace our weaknesses and not allow them to become an excuse to not pray for the miraculous power of God. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, no, here it is. We're good. We're good. People are going to be listening to this podcast and just have no idea what's happening to me up here. All right. Number three, live in fear and trembling. Paul says, I was among you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Live in fear and trembling. Listen, this is a common theme from the writings of Paul. 2 Corinthians 7.15, his affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with what? With fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your hearts, 
as to Christ Jesus. Fear and trembling. What is this idea of fear and trembling? It is a holy fear of God. It is holy reverence and recognition and understanding of who God is, how great his power is, and how holy he is. And you see, if we have fear and trembling, then we're going to live in a holy fear of the consequences of not obeying God and his mission. So Paul says, I was, I was with you in my weaknesses, but I was also with you in fear and trembling. What does that mean? That means I was scared of what would happen if I didn't do what God said. So even though people were beating me and threatening to kill me, and even though people were spreading lies about me, and, and, and no matter what, I was still more scared of God than I was of people. And therefore, I preached the gospel. Therefore, I kept praying for the sick. Therefore, I kept planning churches. Why? Because I was more scared of God than I was of people. I was more scared of God than I was of failing. I was more scared of God than I was of losing my own reputation. Come on, if we're going to embrace this life of fully preaching the gospel, we need to be more scared of God than we are of anybody or anything else. We need to live in fear and trembling, right? Jesus said, what can man do to you? Don't fear man. Fear the one who can send your soul to an eternity of torment in hell. Let's live in a holy fear of God. Let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let's not take a flippant attitude towards God that says, well, I mean, I come to church and I hear about Jesus so I can do whatever I want to do. No. If we truly understand God, then we know we can't do what we want to do. We have to do what he wants to do. Live in fear and trembling. No matter what man does to me, no matter who mocks me, no matter who persecutes me, even if I pray and nothing happens and I'm humiliated, I'm still going to be more scared of God than I am of any situation here on earth. Come on, live in holy fear and trembling. And finally, number four. Then we pray for a demonstration of the power of God. Right? So we come in weakness. We come in fear and trembling. We proclaim a very simple message, and then we pray for a demonstration of the power of God. Signs and wonders follow the preaching of the gospel. Right? Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 17. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Now, can I just point out, please, that that doesn't mean that you should go around doing stupid stuff just to try to prove it doesn't hurt you. That just means that in the course of carrying out the mission of God in your life, God will protect you, okay? Can we just clarify that? We don't need anybody going out doing stupid stuff just to prove that God is for you. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by what? By the signs that followed. Signs and wonders follow the preaching of God. 
So I've got two possibilities here in your notes. Two hypotheses? What's the plural of hypothesis? Hypothesi? I don't know. But I got two of them for you here, okay? The first one is this. What if our evangelism is ineffective because we're relying on human wisdom rather than the power of God? What if our evangelism is ineffective because we're relying on human wisdom rather than the power of God? I mean, what if we're like, man, I keep inviting people to church and they never come. I keep telling people about Jesus and they never give their life to Christ. What if we're relying on human wisdom? Check this out. I looked this up in Wikipedia. Now, can we just clarify? First off, those of you who know that have gone to college, that you're never allowed to use Wikipedia as an academic source for your paper, okay? We also know this, that Wikipedia, through meta-analysis, has been shown to be tremendously accurate in almost every area except politics and religion, right? Because when it comes to politics and religion, people are too swayed by their emotions and their biases to give good, accurate information. So Wikipedia is never a good source for Bible study, all right? Let me just declare that. Wikipedia is never a good source for Bible study. It is a good source to go to when you want to understand what people that don't like the Bible think, all right? Because most of the stuff about the Bible on Wikipedia are written by people that don't like the Bible. So I actually looked this up in Wikipedia. I looked up signs and wonders. And in Wikipedia, it talked about power evangelism and that this term power evangelism was coined during the Jesus people movement back in the the 70s. But I'm going to quote this. This is directly from Wikipedia. Listen to this. Power evangelism is a form of evangelism which relies on the supernatural power and gifts of the Holy Spirit. That is, on signs and wonders to reach new converts and work through born-again Christians. Now, here's the part that really should stick in our spirits. This is not the way most churches practice evangelism. Right? Can you believe? This is what Wikipedia is saying about us. Most churches practice evangelism by relying on an intellectual argument with the hope of salvation through logic and structured rituals. So what is Wikipedia, how does Wikipedia describe the church? It describes the church exactly the opposite way that the Bible says we're supposed to be doing it. Most churches depend on persuasion through logic and structured rituals and intellectual arguments rather than on the power of God. So again, I go back to my hypothesis. Maybe our evangelism is ineffective because we're relying on intellectual arguments and logic and structured rituals rather than relying on the power of God. Here's my second hypothesis. What if we are not seeing signs and wonders because we're seeking them for our own benefit, not for the demonstration of the kingdom of God? Right? What if we're not seeing signs and wonders because we're just looking for them for ourselves? The only time we pray for a sign or a wonder is when somebody in our family is sick or somebody in the church is sick. And and we just want to pray for things inside the church. 
But if we're not declaring the kingdom of God, and if our passion is not to advance the kingdom of God, then we shouldn't see signs and wonders because that's not what they're for. Are you guys tracking with me? So what do we need? We need a simple gospel. We need to embrace our weaknesses. We need to live in fear and trembling of God. And then the part that we're missing is we need to pray for the demonstration of the power of God. Every time, every time. In fact, I wrote it like this in your notes. We have to believe that every time we share the gospel, the power of God will demonstrate irrefutable evidence of the kingdom of God. We have to believe that. Let me have the worship team come back up here today. We have to believe that every single time we pray that the power of God is going to show irrefutable evidence. Is it going to happen every time? No, it's not. It didn't happen every time Jesus prayed. It didn't happen every time Paul prayed. It's not going to happen every time, but we have to believe that it can happen every single time. And you say, what are you talking about? Well, let me, let me try to illustrate this for you so that, so that we can understand this, all right? So I'm a huge San Diego Padres fan because I grew up in San Diego. That's about the only reason to be a San Diego Padres fan is because you grew up in San Diego because they've been awful for most of my life. And now this year, suddenly, they're the best team in baseball. And I am enjoying every moment of it. And their team is stacked. They got lots of great players, lots of great pitchers. But they've got one player who stands out above the rest. They've got this kid named Fernando Tatis Jr. And I call him a kid because he is only 21. Maybe he just turned 22 years old. And he's already the best player in baseball. The things that this kid can do are just mind-blowing. He's fast. He can contort his body like Gumby. So when he's sliding into a base, most people slide into a base, and they just get tagged out. But somehow he slides into a base, and it looks like the Matrix as he is dodging the tag and getting safely to the base. So he can hit for power. He's tied for the league lead in home runs right now. He can do it all. This kid is amazing. And I tell you what, this kid has swagger. Right? He's got swagger. You know, baseball used to have an unwritten rule that if you hit a home run, you just put your head down and quietly trot it around the bases. But this new generation of ball players is breaking all the unwritten rules. Now, when they hit a home run, they stand there and watch it. And then when it's gone, then they flip their bat to the dugouts, and then they do some celebrations as they're jogging around the bases, right? They got swagger now. And the old guys don't like it, but I love it. It makes baseball so much fun. Here's the thing. Fernando Tatis Jr. will probably hit 50 home runs this year, which is an amazing season. You know, it's not like a steroid Mark McGuire season, but still, 50 home runs is an amazing season. But here's the thing. He's probably going to get to bat almost 500 times. That means he's only going to hit a home run 10% of the time. Yet he has so much swagger that every single time he steps up to the plate, he knows he can hit a home run. Every time he steps up to the plate, he believes it's going to happen. Now, it's only actually going to happen 10% of the time, but he has the swagger to believe that it's going to happen every time he steps up to the plate. 
See, that's the confidence that we need as followers of Christ. That we have that confidence that every time I declare the kingdom of God and every time I pray for somebody, I'm going to believe that the power of God can work through my life, that at the name of Jesus, signs and wonders can be performed and irrefutable evidence can happen to to, to confirm the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom. I've got to believe it. And if it only happens 50% of the time, that'll still spark revival. If it only happens 40% of the time, that'll still spark revival. But I've got to believe that it's going to happen every single time. Every single time. And listen, if I declare the kingdom and I pray in the name of Jesus and I pray for supernatural miracles and they don't happen, I've got to trust that that's on God, not on me. Right? We put so much pressure on ourselves. I got to trust that that's on God and not on me. But I have got to believe that every single time, every single time, the authority in the name of Jesus is there to see supernatural miracles take place. Every single time. Come on, we're going to proclaim a simple gospel, we're going to embrace our weaknesses, we're going to live in fear and trembling, and we're going to pray for the demonstration of the power of God. And we're not just going to do that at church. We're going to do that everywhere that God sends us. Are you with me? Amen. Will you stand with me right now?